Welcome to Alcove. This evening, we are pleased to welcome Joshua Bengio. Bonsoir. Hello, good evening. So, uh, I think most everyone didn't get the message. We're doing a cooking show and we're learning how to make a salad. So, I'm sorry if I disappoint some of you, but you're more than welcome to stay because the salad will get interesting. <laughs> how are you? Good. Thank you. You know, uh, there's so much that's been written about you, uh, about uh, artificial intelligence and deep learning and all the work that you've done. Um, but you know, I still don't know much about you. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, who's Joshua? I mean, what, what gets you up in the morning? Uh, what gets me up in the morning are my dreams that are becoming something, that are becoming, you know, the ideas that make up the stuff of research. I often wake up with uh, new ideas or, well, these days, all kinds of stressful things in my life, but, but uh, it's, it's the time when things are a bit fuzzy, where imagination really meets reality and something happens. Hmm. And so, were you born with it? I mean, who, who's born a computer engineer no. or a scientist? No. Uh, what got you into this, uh, this field? It's, you know, life is just a series of uh, coincidences. Mm. Um, I was interested in science as a kid, like many kids, many boys, not enough girls. Um, and my encounters with computers have been later uh, in adolescence. This time, at that time, you know, there wasn't much, uh, there was no video games. It was like text-based games on the uh, old Mac and the old Atari that we had at home. Uh, and so in order to do something fun with those primitive computers, you had to program them. So my brother and I shared our economies and, and, and bought, a, bought a, these uh, machines and learned to program them so that we can play with them. But we were like 15. Sounds a lot like Bill Gates, doesn't it? <laughs> and um, this is amazing because the uh, computers have changed the world in so many ways. Um, and it's just the beginning. And it's just the beginning. Um, so uh, being in tech myself, I'm, I'm more on the chip side. Um, and I read recently that um, you know, your work took a whole different level with the advent of supercomputers and, and microchips. GPUs, yes. these graphics processing units that right. have been designed for video games. Right. They have been a key ingredient in the success we had a few years ago because the computers of the day weren't powerful enough to do the kinds of things we needed to do. And it turns out that the kinds of computations you need to do for neural networks, for deep learning, are pretty well done by these chips that are meant to do rendering and, and graphics. And so from you know, one day to the next, when we started using them, we were able to improve our computational efficiency by a factor of 10, 20. 
And that changes a lot because an experiment which would take a year could be done in a month. An experiment would, would take a month, would take you know, a couple of days. So suddenly we were able to do things that we would not dream of doing before. And, uh, and that happened at a time when also um, different organizations were starting to collect larger data sets, uh, which turned out to be really a key ingredient for the success of AI. Because modern AI is built on data. So these two things combined with the progress in science created something you know, about uh, eight years ago or something that really lifted very, very quickly. And so, you know, I can relate to that because I, I used to do um, programming myself a little bit, uh, not to the same extent, but in different fields. And what we used to do, we used to let the computers run overnight. Yes. And so um, we would, you know, network these computers together yeah. and let them run overnight. But still, we were not able to get the level of processing um, necessary. So do you envision now with, with technology being more pervasive, with companies doing their own research, do you envision a different model where companies like Facebook and Google will, uh, maybe not even Facebook, even Baidu or Alibaba, all these companies, Amazon, who are uh, direct beneficiaries of these technologies, will themselves develop holistic platforms, meaning the hardware side, the search engine, but also the data processing in between. Do you, oh. do you see that? Oh, it's already happening. So, you know, Google has developed uh, the first really uh, heavily used chip for deep learning. It's called TPU, Tensor Processing Unit. Um, and that was already a couple of years ago. They have a new one coming uh, called TPU2. Uh, because I said before that GPUs, the, the, these graphics uh, processors, uh, were good for deep learning, but they weren't really designed for deep learning. So uh, many companies now are designing chips especially for deep learning. And you can get another 10x, 100x speed up or uh, reduction in, uh, in energy consumption, which is really important to, to be able to put those things on this or in your car. So uh, this is happening. Um, billions of dollars are being invested to build those new chips. They're going to be specialized for this. Oh, and about what you said regarding letting things run overnight. Um, I remember when I was doing that, uh, now my students do it, uh, you know, I was really happy when Christmas came because I had like two weeks of computing time to myself. <laughs> so yeah, weekends, vacation, great time to run experiments right. <laughs> because the, the computing is available. And, and for people who are not familiar, um, network computing has changed my life as well in the sense where you know, I used to run experiments on one computer and I could go so far, but having access to you know, a Watson platform from IBM, for example, where I, you know, for a very, very low cost, I can get access to, to quantum computing, for example. And so now I can run multiple sets of experiments uh, using the world's most sophisticated computers. Um, and 
IBM did something that was truly remarkable. Um, they democratized the technology and made it accessible to the general public. Um, you have been a major contributor with neural networks and deep learning. And this province is, is well known because of, of in artificial intelligence, largely because of the work and your students have, have been doing over so many years. How do we ensure that, like IBM, this technology or this platform that you're building, because it is a platform, that is accessible to a wider community rather than the haves? That's a very good question. And unfortunately, I don't have all the answers. <laughs> um, actually, uh, well, there's some good things about the current scene in, in AI research, which is uh, uh, even though there's a lot of the research that's being done in industry, that research is being done in the open. So the, my colleagues in industry are behaving pretty much like if they were academics. They put their code online, uh, open source. They publish what they do. So there isn't really this sort of a secret uh, thing happening in some garage or like in some movies, in some remote, uh, you know, hidden uh, mountain. That's not how science is happening. Science is happening as a community effort. We constantly are building on top of each other's ideas. And each little contribution is just one little step. Some of those steps become really important because you kind of pass a threshold and something now you know, happens so that it becomes possible to do really better, say, uh, speech recognition or machine translation or driving cars with, with computers. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really something that isn't coming from a single person. It's not me, it's not my students. Uh, my collaborators, it's a whole community across the planet. When, when you work in, in a scientific community like this, you feel much more belonging to humanity than to a particular place. Of course, I love Montreal and it's my place, but. So speaking of Montreal, I mean, you're, you're well known. Uh, it's a small industry, even though there's many people talking about artificial intelligence, but it is a small club. It's an, um, and all these large corporations have you know, acquired talent all over the globe. Uh, in fact, I read something amazing. I, I studied uh, electrical engineering. I should have stayed in, in uh, computer engineering. Because it looks like, uh, according to what I read, uh, Google's hiring PhDs yes. <laughs> at more than half a million dollars of starting salaries. Yeah. I'm not making half a million dollars starting salary. Um, but, you know, you, you decided on staying in Montreal, uh, which, by the way, I applaud you for doing that, when you could have gone anywhere. Why specifically Montreal? That's where my life is. That's where I built my little, uh, you know, the place where I'm, I'm happy, where I'm connected, where I'm, I'm productive. Um, but I'd like to come back to the question of these large companies hiring a lot of talent. That's one of the reasons why I decided to stay here. Um, I felt like if I were to go to California and work for one of these big companies, 
just at the time when I reached the peak of my you know, productivity, uh, it would be, I wouldn't feel good about myself. Mm. Um, and, and I'm concerned that uh, these large companies have been drawing talent out of Canada, out of uh, Montreal and, and, and several other places uh, with those salaries and amazingly good conditions, not just salary, but in terms of their ability to do research, data, computing, uh, engineering support. So, so I decided to stay and to tell the governments, hey, wake up, we have to do something here. <laughs> uh, and it seems that I've been hurt. They are really keen on making Canada a worldwide leader in AI and are actually putting down the money for trying to make that happen. I also want to come back to your previous question about uh, whether we should be concerned about big companies concentrating all the expertise and all the talent and all the, the AI might. Um, I think right now we shouldn't be too concerned, but in the future, I'm concerned because AI is such that those the first there's a first mover's advantage. So right. those organizations that have a lot of strong scientists, uh, a lot of capital for buying those uh, machines, a lot of data from, for example, their customers, and a lot of customers to sell their products. All of these things combined is sort of. Uh, you know, all the ingredients to get even more of all of those things, right? They just feed each other. So there's a danger that we, we might be moving in a world where just very few companies, maybe with some specialization, like we have now, you know, Google for search engines and Amazon for com commerce and Facebook for social nets, essentially control their part of the world and are kings of the hills and nothing can displace them. Uh, and as AI becomes stronger, as the science improves, this might get worse. And this is something I think we should be concerned about. It's not my only concern about the future, but it's one that we should you know, keep in mind. It's a very valid concern. We live in an era of winner take all. Um, nobody wants to fund a startup that's gonna take 15 years to be number 50, right? You know, so we are also in an environment where um, the ecosystem isn't there yet here in Montreal. I mean, there's, there's, there's desire from the governments and from people like yourself to create an ecosystem that's favorable for the development of super uh, champions of the future. Um, but that ecosystem requires financing. Yeah. And um, I read recently that um, New York, um, Pennsylvania, um, places like, uh, like that where, uh, not just Silicon Valley, but places like uh, you know, near Carnegie Mellon, uh, New York, of course, Boston. Boston, which I know fairly well, uh, they're attracting a lot of uh, investments. Do you, do you see that as a risk for the continuation of the evolution of artificial intelligence here in Montreal? Well, right now, things are really working in our favor. <laughs> So this momentum of investments in Montreal, of top scientists coming here or deciding to stay here, 
uh, and, and sort of the critical mass of uh, experts, of scientists in this field right now is really drawing a lot of investment. Um, so it used to be that in, in many tech areas, uh, if you wanted to get U.S. venture capital, you basically had to accept to move your company to the U.S. or uh, Silicon Valley in particular. I've had to do that myself. So you see. Uh, and that has been a very frustrating experience for many Canadians and really bad for the country as well. Things have changed and, and American VCs are now happy to invest here and have the companies stay here because they know that it's the place, that's where the action is, that's where the expertise is, and other companies are just, you know, more and more coming. So you've heard about the Facebook announcement last week, but just today there was another announcement from Samsung also opening an AI lab here. And of course, last year we had Microsoft and Google, and I won't tell you, but there are some other companies discussing, you know, in the future. Wonderful. And, you know, so from, I work in the East End. And so, I mean, this is music to my ears, right? Um, meaning that there's investments in, in Montreal. But when I look at uh, the distribution of these investments, it's largely concentrated in areas that you would say don't actually need more investments. So, you know, how, how do we make sure that the kid sitting in Saint-Michel who's in high school right now, the kid that lives in uh, Pointe-aux-Trembles or in Longueuil um, also participates in this digital economy, in this revolution of computer science and artificial intelligence? That's a good question, but I feel like you know the answer better than I do. I don't. <laughs> I, I honestly don't, but, but I, it, it is also, you mentioned about concerns of yours. Um, that's the reason why I decided to stay in Montreal and to also invest in the east end of Montreal because right. I felt that I could try to make a difference by being there myself. So my customers, my investors don't care I'm in Montreal North. What they care is my expertise. Yeah. So I have this attraction, uh, I, I have this ability to attract them to the region, but I'm concerned that we are replicating the same patterns that we've done before. Uh, and you know the definition of insanity. And I, I, in my opinion, something is lacking here. Yeah. Um, and I don't have the answer. Well, so I have a sort of philosophical answer to this. We live in a society that um, has put a lot of its eggs in the idea that we just let the, the you know, natural uh, law of the jungle right. do its work and it's gonna be you know, for the best of everybody. But it's not true, it's not true. There is concentration of wealth, concentration of expertise in this field in particular. And the only way to rebalance things is to collectively decide to do so. Uh, that's why we have governments in the first place. So I think the answer is to have, say, government programs that will help people who need it the most to bring them back 
you know, where they belong. Now, practically, the good news about AI is that a lot of information is available online that um, you can do a lot of things on your laptop. You can't do complicated experiments, but you can learn quite a lot. And, um, and that if you live in the East End, you're actually not that far from my university. Right. Just take the metro and you can get there. One line. Um, so I, I think there are some possibilities. I, I'd say the barrier is not the distance here, it's the cultural uh, gap. So the education, uh, giving you know, the, this uh, excitement about technology and AI that I experienced when I was adolescent to those kids. That's the solution. Right. This is a very good point. I, I grew up in Saint Michel myself, so I got excited by technology uh, in in one class of, of computer science. We were programming Lotus and Fortran and Pascal, and I thought this was pretty interesting. So. I got interested, I got a professor that actually encouraged me to follow through. Um, so I think education has a lot to do with it. And I think you know, you're doing your part with the university research. Um, but you know, getting them excited. So if you had to tell this 10-year-old who's in this, this poor neighborhood right. you know, something cool and something exciting to get them curious about uh, AI and computer science, what would you tell them? Well, that's... Besides gaming, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, AI can be used for good, can be used for bad reasons as well. Um, and it doesn't have to be used just for the, the profit motive. So one of the things that I got interested in a few months ago when I was in Geneva at some UN meeting talking about the beneficial use of AI is um, how could graduate students from around the world and people working in uh, NGOs somehow get together to apply AI in situations where companies might not go, but that could have a big positive impact on the world. Say, work on some medical problem that exists in Africa and that doesn't interest any of the pharmaceutical companies because there's no money to make for them. But a few kids who have read that stuff and played with those algorithms can actually solve those problems. That's, that's the power that these kids could have if they took the time to really plunge into it and uh, you know, eat it and drink it every day and become themselves experts. And it's feasible. It's, you know, I didn't, I don't think I got where I am because I'm smarter, smarter than anyone. I was just more motivated. So it's all about motivation and persistence. Um, and of course, being in an environment where you get positive reinforcement for continuing in that direction. Speaking of that motivation, I mean, you know, at times I get discouraged. Um, I, I want to go fast. I'm, I'm not millennial, but I'm just before. <laughs> I, I, I'm looking for the f uh, fastest path. Um, but you know farewell that you know, fast track doesn't necessarily lead you too much, so you have to persist. So, you know, I'm sure at times you must have said, well, I, I'm going to give up. When, when was, was there a point where 
you felt that this was, you're taking on too much and that you'd give up. And then the second half of the question is, when did you realize that you were onto something and that breakthrough was near? All right, so for the first question, as a researcher, I, I, I made this analogy a few years ago that you're like a boxer. So what happens is you, you have to be trained to fail because you have an idea, you get all excited about it, you become emotionally attached to it very quickly. Like when I get an idea sometimes, it's like I'm in love with this thing mm -hmm. and I think it's gonna be amazing. Um, and so you work on it, you, you maybe spend days, weeks, months, and you realize it doesn't work. And so it's, it's trial and error? Science is an exploration. We are explorers. Most paths lead nowhere. So, so the boxer, you know, must be willing to receive some blows and, 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 and have pain, but go back to fight. And then, you know, once in a while, you actually get something that makes a difference. So you have to be persistent, and you have to accept and be, you know, used to failure. I think it's the same for entrepreneurs. Like, successful entrepreneurs are not afraid to fail. Just go back to the front. And what was the second question? The second question is, when was the time that you oh, yeah. really realized you were onto something? Right. So when I was... Uh, looking for a topic for my master's thesis around 1985. I read those papers about neural nets. This was, at that time, a completely esoteric thing. Nobody was doing this. A few crazy people from around the world. And I read those papers and I really got excited. I got in love with this, these ideas. Again, this is, this, is, this is why I'm a researcher, right? I get in love with ideas. Well, I also get in love with other things, other <laughs> with people, but that's different. So. So, so it never stopped. Like, I'm also very faithful <laughs> to these, uh, um, these relationships I have with ideas. And um, I, I always had the certainty that this was the right path. Now, um, we never knew that it would explode like this. Never knew. I mean, it, even... Like if you have asked me two years ago when it was already kind of exploding, I would have said, yeah, well, we didn't ex ex uh, expect it um, and, and it's probably gonna calm down now. But no, it's continuing to get crazy, get even more crazy, right? So it's hard, it's hard to predict the future, but you don't need to. Just follow your instincts, that's the thing. And so when you read that paper, you realized that this was something you were passionate about. Yeah. And, and so, so you, let's walk through this. You, you basically dove all, all in. So you, you said, yeah. I'm all in. Yeah. And, and I found a professor. Nobody, no professor was interested in this because it was such a, you know, just a few people in the world were doing neural nets in 1985. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, because I had been a good boy and I had good grades, I had the, a scholarship from the government, so I didn't depend on the money from a professor to do graduate studies. So I went to a professor who did something somewhat close and I told him, do you want to be my supervisor? I have a scholarship. 
uh, and I want to do this, which was not what he was doing. Hmm. So he said, well, that's not exactly what I do, but okay, let's, let's do a compromise, and you'll do this, apply to my things, and that's what I did, and, and um, it worked. For the benefit of the audience, can you name that professor? Sure, Renato de Mori. <laughs> okay. And actually, I learned Italian thanks to him. Very nice. Possiamo parlare italiano? Un And by the way, this, it's, uh, your story is, is not too different from many people that, that I've met and that I've, um, that I've created breakthrough uh, achievements, or that, that at least I've created breakthrough products or projects. Um, in, in your universe, um, what is the ideal world of tomorrow? Ah, well, in the last few years, I've uh, started to think more about society and not just AI and, and machine learning and um, science. And one reason is that I believe that AI is going to have a huge impact on society, and we better start thinking about it. Um, but it got me thinking about how society is organized as well. And I feel like, as a citizen, uh, I'd like to see a different society. Um, I'd like to see a society where the, uh, what's guiding our decisions as individuals, as organizations, uh, is better aligned with the collective good, what's good for the planet, what's good for people. I feel like we are in a system that's been really good for us. I mean, we're much better off than our grandparents. But if we don't change things, we're running into a wall. It's not just climate change. I think AI also, you know, in the future, uh, is something that requires us to become wiser. So one example is uh, the use of AI in the military. Uh, I'm signing a letter that will be sent to the Canadian government to ask the government to take a position uh, at the UN against the use of AI for what's called lethal autonomous weapons. Um, so I, I really think that we, we need to reorganize a society, for example, to get rid of war. I mean, getting rid of war is so, is so trivial in principle, right? So if, if instead of having 100 countries, we had one global organization, there would be no war, right? I mean, we got rid of war inside countries. Anyways, that's just one example. Uh, and I have a model for, I think, how a society should, could function that's not uh, motivated first and foremost by profit, but motivated by you know what could I do or what, what what could my organization do that's best for society? And that model already exists. It's the model by which scientists work. So you know, scientists in universities across the world, they get funding from their governments or philanthropy, and uh, it's not about whether what they're doing is going to be profitable. It's, it's about whether what they're doing is good for society. It's something that's you know, giving, you know, bringing new knowledge, or doing something that will be useful to treat, to, to, uh, to help uh, healthcare or whatever. And, and, and we get evaluated based on that. You know, every time we do something, we report to the people who give us money, 
in terms of this, and, and it becomes our guiding principle. Mm. And it works. And, it, uh, so, and it's not because we're smarter or anything. It's just a different social organization. So I think a lot of the society could be uh, organized in a similar way. Uh, of course, I don't know how to get there. But I think it's quite possible to have a whole society that's uh, structured around uh, the common good, at least that the incentive for people would be to get recognition for doing something good for the planet rather than becoming richer than their neighbor. Right, right. It's very true. And you know, unfortunately, this, this is a much bigger challenge uh, than one individual can solve. But I think by you taking action and standing for your belief and, and making it known publicly, uh, that's, that's the right step. You know, I, I'm an optimist. I, I look at the glasses half full or so much space to fill. Um, you know, when I look at the conversion of technology over the years, there's always been that fear. You know, computers are going to replace humans. Uh, Smartphones are going to make us, uh, you know, um, closet people. Um, you know, emails and and and, uh, and traveling, actually, planes. Uh, you know, so many things, so many inventions over the years have had people different concerns, different era, different concerns. Um, I view AI as an opportunity to change the world, to do things in a whole new way, and. What are some of the exciting applications that you're looking forward to? And how do you see them transforming the way we do things? Well, the interesting thing about your question is, I think there are a lot more people of your type that will have the answers to these questions. So I'm developing new algorithms to help computers better understand the world. But I, I'm not spending my time thinking about how it could be used for all kinds of things. That's where the innovation and the entrepreneurs and, and so on are really, and the engineers have to come in. And, and of course, they are already. There's a lot of uh, things happening. But let me try to answer it nonetheless. Mm. Um, so one of the areas uh, that's really exciting is the application of AI in medicine. And it's not going to be totally easy. There are a lot of barriers because uh, different organizations are hoarding the data and there are concerns about privacy. So we need to set up, again, collectively, a social um, system that will mean that patients can trust that their data will be used for good and not against them, for example, by insurance companies, as an example. Um, and, uh, and, that, and then, of course, the privacy of the data will be maintained. And, and if we do that properly at the level of the planet, uh, our ability to understand disease and cure it could be completely transformed. We have no idea how much it could change things. You know, currently, uh, medicine base, bases its decisions on studies with a few tens of people. But we can do something equivalent with millions of people, which means that we can have what's called personalized medicine. You know, you're not just a disease. You, you have all kinds of characteristics. You have a full genome. And uh, we are starting to see the use of AI to take advantage of, of those details in order to come up with treatments just for you. Uh, for example, 
no two cancers are the same because they have to do with mutations that are happening in your cells that are different from anyone else's mutations. Uh, one example that's interesting I want to mention is uh, I've been uh, collaborating with a company here in Montreal called Imagia that has been using uh, deep learning for radiology, for recognizing cancer cells from images, uh, from medical images. And, uh, and, and, and they're trying all kinds of things, but on, on one particular type of cancer, they're able to detect those cells better than the best doctors and much, much better than regular doctors. Mm -hmm. so, so we could see a democratization of medicine that we can't imagine right now. We could bring health to the whole world and not just rich people. Uh, we could cure things that r right now seem incurable. So that's one example, I think, that will transform many people's lives. Another example is the way we interact with computers. Right now, we have to go through menus. We have to know some cryptic language that we call programming languages. And just a few people are able to do, to do it well. Uh, and a lot of people don't have access to the, the richness that computers can give us. So some of us benefit from it because you know, we, we have it easy with computers. But a lot of people don't. So what's happening right now is we've made progress in the ability of computers to understand language and produce language. So in my lab, for example, we really had a, an important discovery a few years ago that has been transforming uh, machine translation, so how computers can translate from one language to another. Um, and this kind of work is also being uh, used right now to build systems that can dialogue. This is still in its infancy. It's, I don't think it's really good enough. But it might be that in a few years, we'll be able to just use natural language to talk to computers. We don't need all these menus and things that we don't understand. Uh, so that could change, again, the life of many people. Think about, for example, people uh, that don't even know how to read and write. How do they have access to all the knowledge in the internet? Right now, they can't. If computers could just understand what they're seeing you know, when they speak and talk back and show them pictures, which will be possible, uh, again, that will change the life of hundreds of millions of people. So true. I mean, we can go in so many directions with this discussion. I have so many more questions that I would love to ask. But you know, I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of people here anxious to ask questions. Um, I've stayed away from the technology because I can read, uh, but I'm sure some people would like uh, to uh, ask you some, some pointed questions. And I guess this is the yes, time now, right? Before that, thank you very much, uh, Professor Bengio and Franz. On va prendre une petite pause. Ça va vous permettre de vous rafraîchir avec. Des breuvages ou de passer à la salle de bain qui est la porte coulissante euh, là-bas au fond. Donc on va prendre une pause d'une dizaine de minutes. Après ça on revient et c'est à votre tour de poser euh, vos questions à notre charmant professeur.